Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We're talking about Rishi Sunak's economic policies. They've been celebrated by Labour and quite a few wonks, but are they as welcome as they seem? We're also talking about Nadine Doris. Again, do make sure you wait for that one. We're talking about George Monbiot on Politics Live, a don't look up moment. And we have Boris Johnson changing the rules while he's under investigation. You couldn't make it up. For months, the Tories have argued against a windfall tax on energy giants, and they've put off providing substantial support for people facing a cost-of-living crisis. But yesterday, keen to get Partygate off the front pages, Rishi Sunak U-turned on both. He's announced that all households are to get a £400 discount on energy bills in October. That won't have to be paid back as the original plan was with that 200. Households on means-tested benefits will get an extra £650. Households on non-means-tested disability benefits will get an extra 150 And pensioners will get an extra 300 And importantly, these are not mutually exclusive. So you could, in theory, qualify for, for all four of these and it would be additional. On the funding side, the Treasury say the plan will cost £15 billion. Five billion of that is supposed to come from a 25% windfall tax on oil and gas firms, though they will be able to avoid some of that if they spend more money on investment instead of, for example, share buybacks. And then 10 billion pounds is to come from borrowing. The Treasury boasts that if we include the 150 pound council tax rebate issued last month, 8 million of Britain's poorest households will be 1,200 pounds better off than they would have been without any help. But the big question is whether it does enough to compensate for 9% inflation. On that front, the Institute for Fiscal Studies has made these calculations. Their number crunching shows that without any government help, inflation would have left a typical median earner around £580 poorer. But the £150 council tax rebate and the £400 grant gets close to cancelling out that loss. In contrast, the help doesn't cancel out the effect of inflation for high earners, but it does more than compensate for the typical full-time worker on national minimum wage. The final type of household they assess is an out-of-work lone parent with two children. They would have been struggling with a below-inflation increase to benefits, but this new package means they will have the same or similar take-home income as they did last year. This is how Rishi Sunak explained the policy. Well, I think when we're dealing as a country with the type of challenge that we now face, with inflation running where it is, uh, I think the right response from a compassionate Conservative government is, as we have done by the past two years, to stand by people at a time of need. And that's why it's particularly important that those most vulnerable get the most support. That's what you saw yesterday. But we also recognise that with bills going up on this scale, everyone is going to feel the pinch. And that's why we wanted to make sure that there was support available for everyone on a more universal basis, £400 this autumn on top of the £150 council tax rebate that has already gone in place. You know, I think that's the right balance, but we've also done it in a responsible way by helping to raise money to pay for some of the measures. For their part, Labour welcomed the package, though Rachel Reeves noted she'd come up with some of Sunak's ideas first. Well, it is clear where the ideas in British politics are coming from today, and that is from the Labour Party, because as you know, and as I've spoken to you on this programme many times, the Labour Party have been calling for a windfall tax on those extraordinary profits that North Sea oil and gas companies are making for months now. And the Chancellor and the Prime Minister have resisted it at 
every stage. Yesterday, they bowed to the inevitable and did that 180-degree U-turn. is hugely welcome because we both know that there are lots of people really struggling. Many people who have had sleepless nights, pensioners that are worried about turning on the heating because they don't know how they're going to pay the bills, mums and dads who don't know how they're going to pay for the new school uniform because there's just not that money there when bills are going through the roof. So it's welcome. I welcome the fact that the government have adopted Labour's policies. Labour really do seem to be celebrating because I think that interview took place at 7am and she seemed a little bit tipsy, obviously. I cannot confirm that. Uh, It's probably quite unlikely, but it was a slightly odd performance from my perspective. The question we are going to focus on, though, is not how early in the morning cabinet or shadow cabinet members get out the spirits. It is whether this policy package from Rishi Sunak is really something we should be welcoming. Earlier today, I spoke to Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Fanbula. So I think the key thing is he had not acted for a really long time. And, you know, for me, that was a massive mistake against the backdrop of huge hike in prices when we knew families were struggling, his unwillingness to act and act big was a massive problem. So I I think against that backdrop, a lot of people weren't expecting him to do that much. And therefore, the fact that he did anything, and he did more than a lot of us were expecting, I think that's the reason why there has been a lot of support uh, for the measures. So for me, the big thing was he targeted those at the bottom end. And if you remember that spring statement, There was absolutely nothing for our poorest families. And the sort of thousand pounds was a big advancement to where we are. But it's not enough. You know, so if you think about it, all he did was replace the £20 uplift that he took took for many of those families. He did nothing to restore the social safety net. He did nothing to deal with the fact that many families are still on the breadline because they're being asked day in, day out to get by on an income that is just not enough to afford the basics. And that fundamental did not change because of his intervention. We've seen that the IFS analysis, which seems to suggest that poorer households will basically be compensated for for inflation this year. Are you saying that Rishi Sunak's package sort of keeps the poorest households at a standstill, so it stops them falling back, but what they actually need is to be pushed forward when it comes to to income levels? 100%. So the way I describe it is that We had families that were on the brink, on the edge of they're not eating, not heating. And what he's done is just pushed them from the brink, but they're still on that edge. And the reason why, and I can't emphasize this enough, we had 10 years in which people's social safety net was hacked away at. So where people were being asked to survive on 70 odd quid a week, which is just not enough. So none of that has changed because of the interventions that he put in place yesterday. He's compensated for the big hike we're seeing in energy bills. But beyond that, families are still on the edge, are still on the breadline. And what I wanted to see was a big measure that wasn't a one-off payment, because by the way, he helps them this winter. What do we do next year? Something that's baked into the social security system that begins to repair the damage that's been done that begins to build back the massive hole that's in it, which is the reason why families are so vulnerable. If you hack away at the safety net, then you're pushing people on the edge. So they get a shock like this, they have nowhere to go. And his intervention did nothing to sort that out. And what would you like to have seen him announce? An increase in universal credit or are there sort of other policies that you think could have had a more fundamental effect on, on Britain's poorer households? 
So for me, there are short-term things and then there are longer-term things. The things that could, we definitely need short-term relief. You know, people are under huge amounts of pressure. It is pretty dire. So we need to do here things in the here and now. I think the three things he should have done was one, a much bigger boost to social security. And that's people on universal credit, but also other benefits. You know, we were saying 17 billion booster social security, that would have been about 2000 pounds in people's pockets, which would have gone a long way to dealing with some of the cost of living pressures, but more importantly, trying to get people closer to the levels of incomes they had back in 2010. The second thing for me is that there is a huge squeeze middle. People who are just about managing, they don't, they're not on benefits, but they are really feeling the pressure. And they got about £400, which against energy bills that are going up by 1501 year is absolutely nothing. Why he didn't do a bigger windfall tax, use the receipts for that in order to bear down on some of the pressures that that group are feeling, I don't know. And then the third thing for me is we know that the way in which that we are going to bear down on bills in the long term and for good is by reducing the amount of energy that we use. We need to do it for net zero reasons anyway, but we absolutely need to do it to help people with the cost of heating their homes. So I wanted to see a big national effort, a great homes upgrade to try and insulate millions of homes over the next three years that has to be bucked by public investment. We do that alongside the short-term measures. And then there is a big long-term agenda. Why this feels so catastrophic for so many people is that we've had a decade in which living standards haven't budged. We've had a decade in which living standards have not budged. And we're about to have more years of that. So there are some fundamental problems with our economy, fundamental problems with the fact that the labour market is not delivering the kind of wage increases that we need to see, the fact that our social settlement has been ripped to shreds. All of that is foundational. And there was absolutely nothing on that agenda. You're speaking here a very strong critique of, of what Rishi Sunak has announced as, as not enough. What we've seen over the past 24 hours is lots of Labour frontbenchers coming out and saying, we welcome this. The Tory party are essentially nicking our policies. We're the guys with the ideas. Welcome to the party, even if you're a little bit late, Rishi Sunak. Do you think they're being overly complacent? So I think there are two things. It is a big win for Labour because they called for a windfall tax when the Chancellor was adamant against it. And he was dragged kicking and streaming to this position. You know, they were saying we need to provide more support for people at the sharp end of this when the chancellor was adamant he wasn't going to do it. So there was definitely a political win there. But for me, look, I don't really care about the politics. The question is, is this enough to help people who are really suffering and struggling? And it isn't. And, you know, you know, my one sort of criticism with you know, the package that Labour had was it would have helped in the margins, but it was never big enough. £650 for the poorest families when they're facing cost of living rises about 2,300 was not enough. So yes, welcome the measure because it's a political win. But what matters is what material impact is this going to have for a lot of people who are very scared, a lot of people who are having to make tough choices. And in truth, it's an advancement on where we are, but it's not enough to help cushion the blow of what people are going through. And let's talk specifically about the windfall tax. That's the big win Labour are claiming because they say we've been pushing for this for months. We've had Tory ministers on the television for months saying we couldn't possibly do that because it was with damage investment. Now they've come out and put one forward. How do you rate the the sort of specifics of the windfall tax that they've they've announced? Two things I'd say, uh, they could have gone further. Like if you're doing a windfall tax and you're gonna take the kind of blowback, we've already seen the energy sector uh, criticizing the government's move, do it properly. 
Uh, 70% rate is the kind of tax that we see on these types of assets um, in other countries. So they could have gone bigger in terms of that and raised more money. I think the second thing is they, if you like, offset the revenue raising potential from excess profits that actually a lot of these energy generators have done nothing to deserve. It is generally a windfall, but they, they blunted that by this massive tax incentive that says if you invest, we're going to give you a massive tax uh, reduction based on that. So companies that were going to invest anyway, and actually they were going to invest irrespective of bumper profits, are suddenly being given money back from the state, therefore offsetting the revenue raising potential. And then the real kicker is they are incentivizing them to invest in fossil fuel extraction, not even in renewables, So, which completely goes against the grain of net zero. So we're suddenly compensating companies that are making excess profits to invest more in fossil fuel extraction rather than the renewable energy generation that we need in order to fundamentally change the energy mix. It's completely bonkers. Before we move on, I want to briefly show you a new series Navarro Media launched earlier this week. In the 1970s, the provisional IRA was in the early days of its armed campaign to end British rule on the island of Ireland. In the United States, a small group of activists began organizing on their behalf. They called themselves the Irish Northern Aid Committee, NORAID, and they were looking for a fight. War is always violence, and if that's the only way in history tells us the only way to get freedom, then it must be war. My name is Nate Lady, and I'm the host of Foreign Agent, a podcast about the connection between ordinary Irish Americans and a revolutionary socialist guerrilla group. This is a story that travels back and forth across the Atlantic over three decades of conflict. And in six episodes, Foreign Agent will explore how regular Americans became militant advocates for the cause of Irish freedom. It is not often that one has the opportunity to kick the shit out of the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, MI5, and MI6, all at one time. We had it, and we did it. Foreign Agent from Navarra Media premieres May 24th. Now, I have to say, I've been listening to this podcast this week. It's so good. And also, I mean, it's something that I'm really proud of our media is distributing at the moment, is making, because it sounds like a New York Times podcast. Now, I often think, you know, our analysis is a little bit sharper, you know, are a little bit more honest, a little bit less in hoc to vested interests than some of the mainstream media. But production values, you know, we've been getting better. But this podcast, it's like, oof, it's really next level. I feel like I'm listening to like a serial series or something. And the content, the topic is incredibly interesting. So do make sure go to your podcast app. And you can either get it on the, the main Navarra feed, or you can get it by searching foreign agents and, and just subscribing to the series channel. The reason we can make these series with sort of really high production values, loads and loads of research gone into them is because of our supporters. So thank you so much if you already are one. If not, as you probably already know, if you're a regular viewer of the show, we are running a fundraiser. We're trying to get up to 10,000 regular supporters. So please, if you're not already, do go to navaramedia.com slash support. Next story. Parts of Rishi Sunak's £15 billion cost of living package are targeted at the poorest. For example, you'll be entitled to more cash if you're on means-tested benefits. But other parts of the offer are universal and all households, however well off, will get £400 off their bills. Rishi Sunak was challenged about these untargeted parts of his plan on the BBC. Does it feel right to you that someone, say, in your financial position receives a £400 grant or someone with a second home receives two lots of £400 grants? 
uh, you know, as, as I said, I mean, second homes account for, I think, one or two percent of the property Not stock, the point, so, though, is it? It's the, but, the but point not, is not, that the wealthy who don't need the grant are receiving the grant. Does that feel right to you? The, the, the point is, when you're trying to make policy that benefits tens of millions of people, there are only a couple of practical ways that you can do that. Now, in, in, in an ideal, perfect, theoretical world, you know, what you're saying is, of course, right. But we have to deal with practical reality of actually delivering policy and delivering support to tens of millions of people. And there aren't that many ways you can do it. You, we've talked about the two main ways. One is council tax system. One is through energy bills on a more universal basis. And as I said, we, we've picked one. And, and it, it would be reasonable uh, for you to ask your questions. And if we pick the other, I'm 100% sure we'd be spending all this time talking about deserving people who would feel that they had missed out. And then we'd had plenty what of case studies what of about... those. And I wanted to make sure that they were all covered. Uh, and that's why we've gone for the way that we have. Now, I don't usually say this, but I have to admit, this is one of the few issues where I'm on Rishi Sunak's side. Universalist policies are often criticised for helping the wealthy, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. The broader a policy applies, the broader the levels of support it can achieve. Think of the NHS, for example. Because rich and poor people use it, there aren't very many calls to get rid of it. When you have something that's just relied on by poor people, it often has weaker support and therefore is more vulnerable. Rishi Sunak is also right that when you means test something, there will always be people who need the benefit who get left out and to my mind, it's better to include some people who don't need the help than exclude others who do. But this is not to say I've converted to Team Rishi Sunak. And that's because the BBC and media have been challenging Sunak on completely the wrong questions. By focusing on the red herring of this £400, they're missing the wood from the trees. And it's because they're steeped, yes, in neoliberal ideology. That's relevant here because neoliberalism encourages people to scrutinise how the state distributes money, but to completely ignore how the market distributes wealth. And it's that ideology which means the press will grill the Chancellor about giving £400 to wealthy families, which to me is a perfectly acceptable byproduct of a necessary universal policy, but overlook the actual outrages he's responsible for. Let's take a couple of data points as examples. First, According to the ONS, between January 2021 and January 2022, house prices increased by 9.6%. And the Financial Times report that total growth in house prices from January 2020 to January 2022 was a whopping 18%. That means the average house costs £40,000 more than it did two years ago. And what this means is that the average homeowner has become £40,000 richer in two years. And that's not the result of hard work. Indeed, you could say it's money for nothing. And to my mind, it's certainly a much bigger outrage than any £400 that any wealthy person might receive to pay their energy bills. Our second set of data points comes from an Oxfam report on how the super rich benefited from the pandemic. Using data from Forbes, they say that there are 2,668 billionaires in the world, 573 more than in 2020 when the pandemic began. These billionaires are collectively worth $12.7 trillion, a real terms increase of $3.78 trillion or 42% during the COVID pandemic. And they say total billionaire wealth is now the equivalent of 13.9% of gross domestic product, up from 4.4% in 2000. And the richest 10 men have greater wealth than the poorest 40% of humanity combined. Let's focus on that second point about the growth of billionaire wealth. Oxfam say it's grown by $3.78 trillion 
over the pandemic, divided by the number of billionaires they state. That makes $1.3 billion each on average for the average billionaire. So in the last two years, the average billionaire got over an extra billion dollars. Again, that strikes me as a much bigger deal than some families getting £400 they don't need. Yet we talk about and pretend to be outraged about the £400 that goes to some wealthy people because of a necessary universal policy. But we say nothing, we hear nothing about the £40,000 average, which has gone to homeowners over the past two years for doing nothing. And by the way, has meant that rents have gone up and it's harder for anyone else to get on the property ladder. And we don't talk about the billionaires who've become a billion pound richer because that's invisible. That's seen as natural. I'm joined now by Ash Sarkar. Ash, make it make sense for me. I can't make it make sense for you, Michael, but I can add to your ire. So when you're looking at the inflation of billionaire wealth over the pandemic, that's just the money which is visible. So according to Oliver Bullock and his theory on Moneyland, anything between one in four and one in seven of all dollars in circulation is actually in Moneyland, this kind of shadowy realm of hiding assets so that they don't appear really on any government's books. You use lots of opaque means like shell companies, very you know hard to access ways of finding out who owns what. And so you've got the asset, but the tax man can't see it and you can still access the wealth from it. So in terms of the appreciation of asset wealth over the course of the pandemic, that's just what we can see. When it comes to the BBC's coverage of means testing, um, it shows how steep they are in that ideology of the deserving and the undeserving. The idea that universal services are bad, that they're inefficient. Whereas, as you said, when you look at something like the NHS, universal services are actually a very efficient way of distributing state resources because you're not wasting all this time trying to police who's able to access it. You just make the service as good as it possibly can be. But I don't actually think that that's why Rishi Sunak and the government have decided not to means test this one-off payment. I think the reason why is because if you talk to any conservative MP, consumer behavior has already changed a lot. And we're just at the beginning of this cost of living crisis and consumer behavior has changed across the board. And that means that conservative voters who tend to be homeowners, who tend to be more economically secure than other people in society, such as renters, social housing tenants, people who are precariously employed, underemployed or unemployed, they are feeling the pinch of energy bills. So I would be in full agreement that not means testing is the right thing to do. That's definitely the right way to go. But the reason why they're doing it is because they know that this cost of living crisis I wouldn't go as far as saying it's a great leveler, but it is going to impact the pockets of people who generally weren't that poorly affected by things like austerity or the financial crisis in 2008. So there's always time for means testing when something only affects the poor. Suddenly it becomes a waste of time and resources when better off are being affected as well. The most outrageous one is that if you have two homes, because, you know, the discount is done by household, which, you know, fair enough, energy bills are also done by household. But if you own two homes, you get two full discounts. One thing I maybe want to push back on slightly, Ash, is this idea of the the deserving and the undeserving, because we've often fought it in the context of state benefits, in the context of austerity, Mm -hmm. trying to divide people between people who are deserving poor and the undeserving poor. But I do think that when it comes to the economy, I mean, some people are undeserving if you are £40,000 richer because you were lucky enough to own a home. Or if you you, know, you live in London, for example, and probably you're at the, the top end of how much your house is worth, 
maybe the value of your house has gone up 80 grand, right? No moral judgment about you as a person, but you don't deserve that wealth. <laughs> you, you didn't do anything for it. I think the way in which you deal with that is by dealing with the tax system at the other end. So rather than investing loads in means testing, which I think will almost always disproportionately impact people who are at the lower end of better off rather than actually um, making sure that rich people don't get things they deserve. Rich people get things they don't deserve all the time, like tax breaks, like favorable rates of capital gains tax compared to income tax. Like, like the rent I pay of, every month. Like the rent you pay every month. The rich get things they don't deserve all the time. But if you had a well-designed taxation system, for instance, when it comes to this £400 payment, you can get that back on the other side if you adjust the top rate of tax. But Rishi Sunak doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to do that. And he doesn't want to expropriate everyone's second homes and implement rent controls, which is why we need to get rid of this man. However many wonks are telling us that this particular single announcement was relatively progressive. In the background of 10 years of, of crippling austerity and skyrocketing inequality after the pandemic, all other things being equal, this policy announced this week is better than if this policy had not been announced. But if you take everything in a more holistic sense, we're all still being screwed over, which I have to say, Miata Fambula put very, very articulately in, in our interview earlier. Next story. Boris Johnson is currently facing an investigation by the Commons Privileges Committee over Partygate. Now, that might sound a little obscure, but it has been considered to be significant because the Privileges Committee that's made up of cross-party MPs can decide whether or not Boris Johnson has broken the ministerial code. And that's significant because if he has, convention would be he should resign. As I say, though, that was the convention. Maybe that's changed because Boris Johnson has now ripped up the rules and seems to have overridden the convention that ministers who break the code should resign. There's a new paragraph in the code now. It's on the topic of punishments for breaches like lacking honesty or openness, which sounds like the kind of thing Boris Johnson might be found guilty of not living out in his career. Um, and it says... Where the Prime Minister retains his confidence in the Minister, available sanctions include requiring some form of public apology, remedial action, or removal of ministerial salary for a period. The government has, has justified the change by saying it was recommended by both Lord Guite, the ethics advisor appointed by Boris Johnson, and the Committee on Standards of Public Life. That's a cross-party group of MPs not appointed by Boris Johnson. But it certainly is a convenient change for a prime minister under investigation. Before it was the convention, you've got to lose your job. Now it's written in the rules. Maybe you can just apologize. That's not the only change made, though. And the most shameless edits involve Johnson's own preface to the code. Here's the version from 2019. He says of ministers, quote, we must uphold the very highest standards of propriety and that the precious principle of public life enshrined in this document, integrity, objectivity, accountability, transparency, honesty, and leadership in the public interest must be honoured at all times. It's all very noble stuff. But here's the new version. And again, we've highlighted all the words about ethics. None. None about ethics. We, we have, though, highlighted one new edition, the summary at the end. And after listing a bunch of policy objectives, Boris Johnson concludes by saying, as the leader of the government, my accountability is to Parliament and via the ballot box to the British people. In short, if my MPs won't topple me, I'm not going anywhere. It raises questions, doesn't it, when the person under investigation changes the rules in a way that 
looks pretty obviously to benefit them. This speaks to the structural weakness of our constitution. Now, it might seem kind of absurd to viewers now, but the British constitution, which is uncodified, based on everyone behaving like a jolly good chap and upholding the rules, that was considered something to be proud of and something that should be exported around the world, you know, backed up by guns, germs, genocide and white collar crime. But it was something that was a real source of pride. The thing about what Boris Johnson has just done is that it shows that if you don't want to be a good chap, there's nothing really stopping you. If you have the political leeway because your MPs don't want to rock the boat, they're scared of losing a general election, they're scared of losing their own seats, then fundamentally the mechanisms for ensuring standards in public life are totally broken. And I think that we were coming to this point for quite a long time. You first saw it with Priti Patel. She was seen to have broken the ministerial code, breached the ministerial code by bullying staff. She didn't resign. In fact, Boris Johnson mounted, you know, a quite rallying defense of the conservative ministers going out and batting for Priti on morning broadcast rounds. After that, you had the really quite egregious stuff around who paid for his flat refurbishment. You had one of the highest possible fines from the Electoral Commission, which tells you, hey, something pretty serious has gone on here. But the mechanisms by which Parliament would hold him to account, uh, the investigation by Lord Guite, well, that was totally toothless. So Boris Johnson was in a position where he can go, I'm just going to shrug off my own wrongdoing, pay the fine, and you know that's that. And then further on from that, you had, I think, the attempt to you know insulate Owen Patterson uh, from having to sit out a simple parliamentary suspension. Uh, that tells you something about Boris Johnson's regard for the good chap model of the British constitution. And now we're here where someone who is under investigation for their conduct while in public office is able to change the rules by which he is held to account. It's a total farce, but we've been on this road for a long time. I mean, I have to say, I have kind of mixed feelings about this one because I was today sort of imagining... You know, if, if, if Jeremy Corbyn became prime minister, you know, if there hadn't been that whole vicious campaign against him for two years, both inside and outside the party, if he had, if he had won that election, I could imagine all sorts of chicanery where you've got sort of like people trying to bring him down outside of an election. And I think we'd probably be making the argument that, look, he won a general election. It, it shouldn't be down to obscure committees to bring this guy down. It should be down to the voters. And so it is transparent that this guy who's very dishonest, who is not very honourable, has now rewritten the rules to, to benefit himself. At the same time, I do kind of believe in the principle that the final arbiter should be the electorate. I don't know, how, how do we make sense of this conflict, I mean, Ash? My internal conflict, can you resolve it? Well, I, I think that you raise a good point, right? Which is also when you've got these non-democratic means of accountability, then they can be used for non-democratic aims. I think I agree with you wholeheartedly in that case. But when you've got a situation where MPs are disincentivized from acting on their constituents' wishes in this case, you know, there has been, you know, a majority of people saying, yes, he should resign over Partygate or, you know, no, I wouldn't vote for him. You know, polling bears that out. But because MPs are like, well, I don't want to lose my seat either. You have a broken method of holding the prime minister to account. And I don't think that it's inappropriate that there are rules for public life and for ministerial life and that those rules are perhaps different from your average MP. I guess the thing that I would finish up by saying is 
we're not voting for the prime minister when we vote for a party. I'm just talking like in strict electoral system terms. We're not. We're voting for the party that we want to form a government. So I don't think that in terms of the British constitution as it is, the voting system that we have as it is, there's necessarily a big conflict in saying, look, change the prime minister, but your party still has a mandate to form a government. There's there's not really a, a conflict there. I think that what you're suggesting would be a much bigger change of the electoral system that you have, where it's made explicit that you are voting for the prime minister. So if he is to step down, it's because he's held to account through democratic means rather than something like a committee or a breach of the ministerial code. Maybe we live in the worst of both worlds because you could say, we'll leave it down to the electorate if you have a, a proper democracy in the ex- to, to the extent that you really have a proper choice over who your MP is. Because I suppose at the moment, you do have a bit of a, a situation which encourages stalemate because obviously the leader of the Conservative Party has a big say in who gets to stand in elections. That means all of these MPs, the same in the Labour Party, by the way, all these MPs have a real vested interest in protecting their leader. And so you don't get accountability from the rules and you don't get accountability from democracy because it's such a closed system. Potentially, if we had proportional representation or if we had open primaries, for example, then democratic accountability would work better. So we wouldn't need to rely on these obscure committees enforcing the rules. Let's not go down this rabbit hole. Let's go to our next story instead. The world has an SUV problem. The bulky vehicles take up space in packed cities, are dangerous to cyclists and pedestrians, and cause more pollution than a normal car. And they're taking over the world. In 2021, a record 45% of global car sales were SUVs, up from 35% in 2019. The extent of the problem is made clear in this graphic from the International Energy Agency and The Guardian. Between 2010 and 2018, SUVs were the second largest contributor to increased global carbon emissions, well ahead of heavy industry trucks and even aviation. Indeed, when it comes to total carbon emissions, if SUV drivers were a nation, they would rank seventh in the world. All of this makes the actions of tyre extinguishers seem fairly reasonable. The group have taken direct action in the posher parts of the city by deflating the tyres of around 100 SUVs in a single night. They do so by putting a lentil in the air valves of SUV tyres, so no no long-term damage caused. A spokesperson for the group explained their action. Politicians talk, we act, we will defend ourselves from air pollution, climate change and unsafe roads, and we urge others to join us. Edinburgh is a small city with good public transport. Nobody living in the centre of town needs to own one of these deaf machines. The tyre extinguishers action was the topic of a debate on BBC's Politics Live. It involved Conservative commentator Isabel Oakeshott, Labour MP Barry Gardner, Tory Peer, Ed Vasey and George Monbiot, who found himself outnumbered. Is this justifiable, Ed? Um, Well, no, I don't think it is. I mean, I think uh, people gluing themselves to the road and deciding that they are going to be our spokesman on climate change and therefore have permission to interfere and uh, mess up our lives in any way they see fit is unacceptable. Yeah, but if you guys were doing their job, d- doing your job, none of this would be necessary. Well, vote for somebody we, else here then. We don't are. let down people's tyres. Yeah, here we does. are in the midst... Yeah, I do, actually. Well, here ahead. we are in the midst of a climate emergency. Oh, come on. You guys... George. What, you're saying it's not a climate emergency? Of course emergency? there's a climate emergency. Are you, but you are you saying that's justified? You're saying that no, no, no. You're just, uh, just spouting the word climate emergency doesn't give you permission to vandalise people's cars no, yeah, or glue you, yourself to the you pavement. You haven't even let me finish my sentence. I know, that's because you're talking nonsense. 
You don't even know what I'm talking because I haven't said it yet. Well, get say it. In quick. the midst of a climate emergency, you guys are messing about, dragging us all into this ridiculous drama in Downing Street and not doing the job which needs to be done. So what do we see? We look around us and see, oh my God, these people are trashing our life support systems with their SUVs and lots of other profoundly antisocial habits. So yeah, I'm in favour of it because I think actually, if you guys aren't going to regulate it, Who's going to step You're in? You're in favour of toileting down. Just yeah, to be clear, yeah, yeah. you literally I are. I am literally wow. in favour. Wow, wow. Yeah, that might I'm let in favour. <laughs> You've let me down. You let the whole school down. Oh, no, right. Well, hang on. I'm, I'm in favour of much cheaper electric cars. I'd love an electric yeah. car. That but not letting people's cars down. I've and already so had the front of my car taken off by vandals. The VW sign. So, you know. Justifiable or not? I think it's criminal damage, but I think there is a place for. Uh, protest that disrupts lives, oh. um, and including I, letting down people. No, that's no, I no, said no, that, you said that's I, criminal that's damage. damage. Yep. Mm. Um, because I think you have to target your message to people who are going to be able to do something about it. And actually, the SUV drivers or owners uh, of those cars are probably not the people who are oh. going to be making the legislation. Okay, let, let's get some perspective here. Um, <laughs> SUVs not only Full not only are, are massively more damaging in terms of yeah. pollution. And in terms of climate breakdown, shortening the lives of very many people. They're also far more dangerous um, for pedestrians and cyclists because they're so big and heavy. If you get hit by one, you're more likely to be killed. I, I'm not advocating SUVs. Okay, 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 but, but right, I agree with you about SUVs. By contrast to the extraordinary imposition they are making on us, letting down a few tyres is actually a very small imposition wow. on them. A hundred, actually, George, this morning. I think you should withdraw your support for letting down tyres. Yes. I think that's really irresponsible for you to sit here on TV and say it's okay for people to take that type of direct I action. It's okay. Wow. All right, well, wow. he's not, well, wow, well, but he's not going to retract it. Ash, it was all giving. Don't look up. What did you think of that debate? The pearls could not be clutched hard enough. You're telling me <laughs> that someone's in favour of letting down tyres. All of those wow. barriers of innocent tyres. Wow. Wow. You know, it's like the domino <laughs> effect, but it starts with a lentil, you know? Like, and then where are we? Full societal breakdown. I think what this shows you is that people say an awful lot of things that they don't even believe, right? Or it's somewhere in between a performance and a sincere belief. People talk themselves into these positions of going, oh my God, I'm so shocked. Oh my God, attire. Isabel Oak's shot is, quite frankly, one of the nastiest people in politics. I've had encounters with her personally where I'd asked Richard Tice, who was at the time the chairman of the Brexit party, I asked him about some of his tax arrangements. And she cornered me afterwards and she was like, what the fuck was all that about? You know, getting really, really nasty and in my face. And so the fact that she's now going, I think you should really retract that. I think you should take that back because I think it's really, really just beyond the pale. It's total bollocks. The reason why they're trying to make George out to be holding some kind of totally out there position, it's nasty, it's borderline violent, it's borderline incitement is because they can't defend the case of having an SUV. An SUV is a death machine, right? It is the most polluting form of car that you can have. It's a really inefficient use of carbon as well because it takes so much carbon to make. So even if you're carpooling and you know, you're stuffing every seat to the gills for every journey you take, it is still a less efficient use of carbon than any other kind of car. It's twice as likely to kill you as any other kind of vehicle. And it's much more likely to kill children because they're so high up 
And unlike other forms of car, you can't solve these problems simply by going electric. And in fact, that makes some of these problems worse. Because if you stick an electric battery, which is heavier than a conventional engine, if you stick that in an SUV, it makes it heavier and therefore more likely to kill a pedestrian or a cyclist in a collision. These things are wholly opposed to human flourishing, dignity, and safety of everybody. But why do we have them? It was a way to popularize military vehicles in the United States. It was an injection of life into the automobile industry. They've had a huge amount of money in terms of marketing, advertising plowed behind them, and they're seen as aspirational. Now, none of those things, none of these desires for the SUV and to feel kind of cool when you're driving up high, none of them outweigh the social and physical harms that SUVs produce. And the minute you start thinking in that way, then you go, well, hang on, either governments legislate and the government isn't legislating, or there is actually grounds for direct action and to take matters into our own hands. Now, if you are letting down tires, it is the definition of a victimless crime, okay? The only victim is the fucking SUV and it's not a thing with feelings. You're targeting the rich because particularly in London, car ownership is associated with having higher income, particularly if you own two or more cars. And SUVs are concentrated in the wealthiest boroughs in Kensington and Chelsea. One in 10 SUVs that sold, I think, is in Kensington and Chelsea. I will have to double check that stat. Very sorry about that. But it's concentrated in much richer areas. So it's a victimless crime. It's targeting the rich. And that's why all of these numpties on the panel absolutely can't abide it. It's a way of stopping people from thinking their way through the problem. I suppose the victim of the crime would be not the tyre, but the person who can't drive to work that morning. But if you can afford an SUV, you can afford an Uber. I mean, that's why it was so silly, like Isabel Oakeshott, like clutching her pearls. Oh, I'd get an electric car if they were affordable. You know what's more affordable than an SUV? A normal car. You can't have sort of like this value-based argument. Value is in the sense of, I could only afford an SUV. I could only afford an SUV is not a sentence that makes sense, Isabel Oakeshott. Let's go to an aside, because we've, we've done some digging. Besides being a Tory peer, Ed Vasey is also cultural editor for the country-set lifestyle rag Country and Townhouse, where they happen to run big spreads like this from their December 2021 issue. Now, we, we don't have enough detail to say Vasey is defending SUVs due to his financial interest because he works for this magazine that gets money from, from the SUV sector. But I do think it is notable how when people say, you know, I support the cause, but not the method. Yes, I think it's a, it's a valiant cause, but I don't think you should take direct action. When you actually look into the choices they make in the rest of their life, it suggests they don't actually support the cause. You know, they, they don't value the method. And they don't value the cause in the first place, which is why they so vociferously oppose the method. Ash, I want to get your thoughts on this. Do you think that Vasey has potentially asked his editor to consider greener sponsors for his magazine? Do you think he has put his money where his mouth is? I don't know. He doesn't seem to me to be somebody who's particularly thought that much about anything. Um, I remember running, him to hit, running into him once at Radio 4 and he was like, who do you work for? And I was like, oh, Navarro Media. And he was like, oh, there's like Breitbart, isn't it? And then kind of ran off. He doesn't strike me as a particularly thoughtful or intelligent man. And I think that he's somebody who's just knee-jerk in favour of protecting property rights, protecting SUV rights, because he's a conservative and he thinks that the idea that your personal consumption habits should be dictated by anything so lowly 
as regard for public health and public safety. You know, I think he just ideologically bulks like that. Hashtag all cars matter. Let's go straight on to our next story. Britain's Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, Nadine Doris, has taken to TikTok. Prepare yourselves. This is how we're improving online safety. The UK is passing some new legislation to make the internet safer for the younger generation. It's effectively a framework to protect internet users from scams, illegal content and anonymous abusers. It will force big tech to stop their terms being breached and puts in measures to defend free speech. But is it true it will impact freedom of expression? No, we put in legal protections in the 19th section. Another thing we're doing to the laws we're passing is tackling online crime and cyber flushing. If companies fail to comply with the law, fail to protect the users that they're responsible for, the regulator Ofcom will have the power to find. So platforms must keep people safe online. <laughs> that was Nadine Doris rapping about cyber flashing. Ash, your verdict. Michael, you're going to hate me. But that was a little bit iconic. I also think it's the best thing she's ever done. I do think it's the best thing she's ever done. The thing about Nadine Dorries is that she is deranged. And I think that can, in some ways, speak to the total degradation of our public sphere in a way that's very frightening, but then also can deliver these moments of almost like daytime TV camp glory. And I wouldn't be surprised if I saw someone on UK Drag Race in a couple of seasons, like doing that for Snatch Game. Do you know what I mean? It sort of is in that category for me. So I know that it's something. You know, on, on no account, you got to hand it to her, but you kind of got to hand it to her. That was iconic. I know probably not because it's, she does have very problematic beliefs. The thing I was tempted to say is if she didn't have any power or influence or get involved in politics, like maybe I'd like her. I kind of like wacky, wacky people like that. But I also know that she's, yeah, it's not just the policies she's in charge of that make her look bad. It's also the way she tweets, the way she talks, etc. The way she talks about people. In more serious news, let's move on from her TikTok escapades. Nadine Doris has continued to mislead in her bid to privatise Channel 4. This week, she tweeted this video of her speaking in Parliament. They want to raise investment. They want to, to invest in more content. And what we're doing is letting, setting Channel 4 free to be able to do that. Because as state-owned, if Channel 4 does that whilst it's state-owned, it is offset against the public balance sheet. We cannot allow that because governments don't own money. We only have taxpayers' money. And therefore, we have to enable Channel 4 to be able to be set free, to raise investment and continue to make the amazing, distinctive British content, edgy, diverse programmes that it does. Now, the implication from that speech, which disappointingly didn't rhyme, is that Channel 4 are keen to be able to borrow private capital and therefore should be set free. This is, this is what they need, this is what they're asking for. But Channel 4 themselves weren't impressed. So they replied to Doris's tweet saying, Clarification. A proposal was made in response to a request from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport showing how Channel 4 could potentially raise a small amount of outside capital. Channel 4 is in excellent financial health and does not want or need to raise outside capital to fund its future plans. And they share a link um, to what were their sort of proposals or their suggestions to the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. Had a look through those. As the tweet suggests, they, they suggested we could get some outside capital. Obviously, the state would have to approve that at the moment. They're not allowed to. But to get some outside capital, you don't need to privatize them. And also, they're not saying they necessarily need that outside capital. They'd prefer to not be privatized and just work with what they've got. 
The performance that you just saw in Parliament is a reflection of the fact that there isn't actually a strong case for privatizing Channel 4. It's in rude financial health. It is fulfilling its remit as a public service broadcaster very well. It's doing what it was meant to do, which is commission UK television from outside of Channel 4 and um, sustain a wider media ecology. It does all those things pretty well and does so within an otherwise challenging broadcasting environment where you've got fewer and fewer people watching TV more and more people going online, so on and so forth, right? It's doing pretty well within that context. The reason why the government want to privatise Channel 4 is simply because Channel 4 News tends to be more critical of the government than other news outlets, and that's all there is to it. It's the same reason why they want to wield the licence fee like the sword of Damocles over the BBC. It's to try and, one weaken the grip of a public institution over a big chunk of the media market. They want to open that up to their super rich friends and media corporations. And secondly, it also means that you have something to hold over the BBC when you go, hang on, we're not getting the kind of amenable coverage that we would like to get. One of the things that politicians will often say is, well, look, I can name this, this, and this political news story. And you know, that was very bad for us. But if you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, quite frankly, BBC politics, it runs with whatever's on the front page of the Daily Mail. It isn't particularly sympathetic towards left-wing points of views. And it narrows the sort of lens of what politics is onto Westminster at the expense of talking about issues like, say, industrial disputes or other social and economic issues going up and down the country in a way which benefits establishment interests. And so that's why Nadine Dorries is making so much noise about Channel 4, and she's not particularly concerned with making honest arguments in order to do it. It's because it serves a political purpose. It's not actually something that Channel 4 needs. Yeah, so all of her speeches defending the privatisation start with private, Channel 4 is doing great. <laughs> Channel 4 is a, re- a real key to Britain's cultural industries. That's why it needs radical change. Very incoherent. We look forward to uh, speaking to a select committee again because it's always entertaining. Ash Sarkar, it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you this evening. Mate, it's a Friday and I feel ready for the weekend because of you, Michael. Because of you. Just feels different, doesn't it, on a Friday? We'll be back on Monday, of course, at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.